Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? Good. Uh, tired. I remember a time when I was not tired, and when there were things like free time and and energy and youth. Was that before you had a kid? Yes, uh, I, I, I mean, theoretically, but even after I had a kid, there were times when I was not as tired as I have been recently, but work has been kicking my ass. Uh, but I still have time to, to dunk on Franklin and, and record endless episodes of this ridiculous podcast with you fine people. It's what's keeping us going, right? Look, therapy is expensive. All right. And my insurance does not cover my therapist, so I can't see him every week. So I've got this instead. <laughs> I believe that Jude has a question for, yes, for us this I week. I do have a question this week. We're breaking format. Justin, Anna, what would you write on the side of a Vorlon ship for Captain Sheridan? Sad dudes. <laughs> you fucking beat me to it. Um, I was gonna go. Well, that that was my initial gut reaction. Um, runner up is honk if you're horny. <laughs> also very good. Alternatively, alternatively, if you if you want to get a little bit more abstract, you have a Vorlon suit. You have a slightly smaller Vorlon suit. And then you have two tidy warlord suits. <laughs> what about what about if you're if you're close enough to read this text, then you are the one. <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. No, and if, I do have to If you add, can read uh, this, if you go to Zahadum, you will die. <laughs> Shit, I've got a Okay, I've got a better take for that joke. Okay. So it's a Vorlotted encounter suit. And two smaller encounter suits. And then a human. Because the human's the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that tracks. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that tracks. There we go. All right. Uh, so, yeah, by our uh, intro joke, you can probably figure out that we have a new Vorlon involved in this. Um, we're going to see how we feel about this motherfucker about oh. mr spiky about about what i have started calling in the notes demon kosh uh i have <laughs> i have a a, a a nomenclature that i think you'll appreciate in in my summary that i think we can all get on board with well uh i, I feel like that's a perfect perfect uh segue into yeah you're taking it away then yeah so Welcome to another one of my summaries in which I ignore the theoretical A and B plots to focus on how much I hate Franklin. Uh, I will actually do the A, B plot first uh, because I am good at my job. I don't know. Maybe. Not good. Malfunction. The episode opens on Malari, uh, who's in this episode for all of about 18 seconds here. 
displaying a stunning lack of understanding how international interstellar treaties work, given that he's a goddamn ambassador and that's like his job, by demanding that the Narn heavy cruiser currently patrolling B-5 be turned over to the Centauri, as dictated in the Narn Earth Treaty. Baldi, completely out of fucks for Malari, points out that they didn't sign that treaty, and when asked what assurances he has that the Narn won't blow up the first Centauri vessel to approach the station, Baldi sneeringly assures him that it's the same assurances that he, that he gave Londo, that no Narns will sneak into his quarters and slit his throat. Uh, that is to say, none, since when Londo says that uh, he was given no such assurances. It's a very hostile, prickly exchange between these two former friends. And it's a scene that is serves really only to let you know that there's a Narn heavy cruiser in orbit and to give Londo something to do in the episode. And then he's gone for the rest of the episode. Uh, we then cut to MedLab, where Lita is back on station and desperately looking for Franklin, trying to find information about the death of Kosh. Or as we will be referring to him for the rest of this episode, Classic Kosh, or Kosh Classic. <laughs> and she's just barely holding it together and finds Franklin's not there, but she does find the typically much more useful Hobbs. But in this case, since she's not in on all the plot shit going on around her, Hobbs has no idea who the fuck Lita is and why she should care about Kosh Classic at all. Uh, she is, however, very emp empathetic, uh, has very good bedside manners, and manages to not hit on Lita, uh, which is more than Franklin would have done with a random redhead that walked into his med lab in tears. In CNC, Baldi shows up just in time to see the Vorlon ship arrive. Uh, the ship is very Sith red to Kashyyyk classes Jedi green, which I'm sure is totally accidental. Definitely. Ivanova tells Baldi that Sheridan wants to have a meeting of the War Council and then asks an aide to tell Sheridan the Vorlon is here. Uh, but Baldi offers to go do it for the aide. Ivanova, who can smell monkey business like a veteran zookeeper, immediately gets him to fess up. Sheridan is out taking a walk on the outside of the station. We get a sweet little zoom effect out to the outside of the station and out on the front spork prongs of the station. Uh, Sheridan is taking a walk. As the Vorlon ship arrives, it suddenly throws on the e-brake and floats up to the top and stares right at Sheridan, which is a very cool scene and very cool effect. And then the side of the ship gets all hergity-mergity and some Vorlon words appear on the side. Send nudes. Yes, presumably asking him to send nudes. Sheridan stares slack-jawed as one presumably would in that circumstance. Uh, and then we cut to the credits. Uh, next, we go to Jakar, who is welcoming the captain of the Narn Heavy Cruiser, Jatok. The captain, that's the ship, Jatok. Nikal is the captain for dinner. And he laments that this is the best he can offer to, and cannot give him a hero's welcome. But he offers him the next best thing, Swedish meatballs. Uh, the captain, however, is not offended uh, because he thinks that they taste amazing and they apparently uh, closely verging on identically resemble something called breen, which is a food from Homeworld. Jakar muses how every race seems to have its own version of Swedish meatballs and either will never know why or if you did, it would drive you mad. 
Uh, he's charming and disarming, and it's exactly the kind of company you imagine that a captain who's been on the run for months and months needs after finally getting back to civilization. Conversation then turns to the war and how many ships have survived. It's not a pretty picture, but more have survived than would otherwise have because the Centauri were in such a hurry to bomb the fuck out of Homeworld that they left a lot of damaged ships behind rather than destroy them as they were going. How very considerate of them. Nicole's ship, the Jatak, is fully functional thanks to Sheridan and B5, and he wants to know when they'll be striking back, but Jakar is quick to disabuse him of that idea. Protecting B5 is more important, or else everything else, and everyone else, falls. Uh, back in the station, while waiting for the new Vorlon, Ivanova and Sheridan discuss Franklin. Ivanova has discovered, thanks to the system logs, that he hasn't been in his quarters for three or four days, and has sent the obvious candidate to try and make sure he's okay, his ex, Baldy. We'll get to these two idiots later. Just then, the Vorlon arrives. This new Vorlon is, has a different encounter suit and sort of looks like a purple a cooler. You know, you put like beers in it. What do you call it? There's a special word for those. Like a beer cooler? Or <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, he's got like a handle on top. His, little, his, yeah. his, his spines come up like a handle. It looks, honest to God, like you could pick him up by the top of his encounter suit and like <laughs> carry him around like a, like a beer cozy. Anyway, uh, he's all purple and red. And his voice is a little bit different than uh, Kosh Classic. Uh, but when asked what his name is, the command staff, Ivanova and Sheridan, understand that they're to call him Kosh in public. But when Sheridan asks what name they should call him in private, he simply reiterates, Kosh. When pressed on this, he drops a prize-winning turd of Vorlon bullshit on Sheridan. We are all Kosh. In Kosh's quarters, new Kosh, as we're going to call this one, uh, which is like old Kosh, but with a different label and bound to have some backlash, is looking around, thinking about where he's going to put his lazy boy in mini-fridge, when he spots a weird a weird mark on the wall and uses Kosh vision to light it up and sees what I swear to God is like clip art versions of Morden and his shadow buddies in 90 neon spray paint on the wall. It's, it's real bad. Uh, the graphics department really really fucking choked on this one. Uh, I have nothing but respect for the CG teams on this show. They were cutting edge way ahead of their time. And they, 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 they just had to have blown their budget on other episodes. And so they just were like, I don't know, man, like stick figure, teddy bear, extra arm, extra arm. There's a shadow. Oh, wait, extra leg, extra leg. There we go. Well done. Uh, it's <laughs> it looks cute. It doesn't look threatening. And and in their defense, also the the Vorlon ship uh, must have must have taken some effort, and it looks better than we've seen from a lot of Vorlon oh yeah, ships no, it looks past. it looks terrific, but it still looks <laughs> this still looks like some shenanigans nonsense in this scene. It's like we can only we can only give this episode like a week of render time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we've run out of hours on the farm, so you get 18 seconds. What can you do with 18 seconds? I can give you clip art. Sold. <laughs> uh, he's interrupted by the arrival of Lita, and their relationship gets off to a terrific start as he immediately goes for the Vader choke. 
demanding to know where she was as she struggles to explain that she was following Kosh Classic's orders and she didn't have any of him with her. Then he scolds her that she failed. New Kosh continues to question her and it seems like he seems to think there's a piece of Kosh somewhere around the station. I guess like, I don't know, he just left it in like an old pair of clothes. It's like in the laundry or something. I do that all the time. I leave like pens and coins in my in my in my laundry. I guess that's the same with Vorlons. You just leave a piece of yourself in an old encounter suit. Or like when you're getting something out of the fridge and you leave your phone in there. I've never done that. I hear people do that all the time. It seems like a funny bit. I should work harder at that. I've done it with my keys several times. Never, never actually my phone because that never leaves my hand. Right. Exactly. Anyway, we see Lita next talking to Sheridan, uh, who asks how she's doing with the new ambassador. And she has some interesting insights into their thought process and behavior. And she's way more charitable than they deserve for someone who was just physically and emotionally abused by her new boss. While they're talking, however, an interesting thing happens. She begins to hear Kosh Classic's voice speaking Sheridan's words. Before she can collect herself, but not before she seems to give away a little bit that she's disturbed, he asks her to do something for him. But because she's not a Narn with a mall katana, it's not what you think. We then cut to the War Council, where, for some fucking reason, Baldi is getting all the credit for figuring out the whole telepath-affecting shadows thing. Look, it was the Narns. You just read a book. Badly, from what I can tell. (laughs) Sheridan is taking out a White Star with Lita on board to test out if a telepath really can fuck up a shadow ship. Sheridan asks if anyone can offer any ships to come along. Jakar offers up the Jatak if he can convince the captain, and Delenn offers up some of her Minbari ships. Jakar uh, speaks with Nikal later on to ask if he, to send the Jatak, but the captain is not remotely into it. He calls it a fool's mission, and Jakar looks crestfallen. Honestly, it's a pretty dick move for someone who gave you Swedish meatballs. Uh, later that night, Jakar is woken from a very sexy sleep wearing his very sexy chest piece by Baldi, who has come to return his copy of the Book of Jaquan, and he's all in a tizzy because Jakar was unable to convince Nicole to go with Sheridan. Baldi is full of piss and vinegar, lecturing Jakar, of all fucking people, about following orders and the necessity of moral sacrifice and soldierly duty. And Jakar's look is one of exasperation and exhaustion, but he lets the fascist rant and get all his noble soldierly angst out and then go back to masturbating to EAS Weekly or whatever Earth Force porn the the guy keeps under his bunk and then seems to uh, ponder a moment and then we cut to the White Star where Lita and Sheridan are having a nice chat about Kosh Classic while waiting for word of an attack. He tells her how he woke up out of a dream and just knew when Kosh had died. He also tells her how Kosh had touched his mind. Just then, Lanier gets word of an attack, and off we go. You can tell how nervous Sheridan is because he doesn't do his patented Sheridan command point to get them off on the road. They drop out of hyperspace, and immediately the shadow ship turns to face them. Equally immediately, Lita loses her damn shit. Uh, She collapses and starts to scream. So much for that. Sheridan goes to try and uh, get her to focus, and she gets a telepathic flash of Kosh's death when he touches her. She understands suddenly how he died, and it pisses her off. I don't know why she didn't think the shadows killed him before, 
But now, having seen a piece of it, she's righteously angry. And so she stands up and tells them to burn. Uh, and that gives her the power to stop the ship and her eyes to bleed, which is creepy and weird. Uh, apparently, when you do hardcore telepathy, your your eyeballs bleed. Seems fine. Now Sheridan feels good, and he gets his point on when he tells them to shoot the gun. Uh, it's going so well, in fact, that they have to take the jump engine offline to finish off the shadow ship. But finish it off they do, and they pop it like a balloon, and it sprays black juice everywhere and shrivels up like a spider that you stepped on or melted with a focused with a beam of light from a magnifying glass or something. Woo! They did it! Except not so much, because despite Lita's best efforts, it got a distress signal off. Four more shadow vessels appear! Oh, that's a bummer. The Minbari ship jumps in with three telepaths on board, and they manage to stop three of the ships, but one gets through and starts chasing the White Star all the fuck over the place. Just when shit looks dire, the Jatok jumps in! and T-bones the shadow ship with its double lasers. Two lasers are better than one, which begs the question why the White Star doesn't have two of its laser cannons. Uh, it's, a, it's a little baby a little baby ship. I'm just saying, the Jatok has two lasers, and that seems to work real good. So maybe the White Star should have two lasers. It's got like the little pulse cannons on the side, so it's got two of those. I'm just saying, it should have two of the big laser guns, that's all. Probably yes. <laughs> Yeah, and you think, and then Jakar comes on the, the line, and you're like, fuck yeah, Jakar, he stole the Jatok or something, or maybe he just yelled at Jalan or whatever his name was. Uh, the cow. Thank you. Yelled at him, and then it, no, it turns out Jakar's not on the Jatok. And another jump gate opens, and boom, the League of Unaligned Worlds motherfuckers come to stomp some shadow asses. And just like that, the shadows fucking up and run like a bunch of schoolyard bullies, motherfuckers. Uh, Lanier is flabbergasted and Sheridan is like, yeah, buddy, up top. That's his victory that he's been so desperately looking for. They return to the station and Lita assures Sheridan that she's good. A little shook up, but she's good. He asks her to stop by MedLab, presumably since now that Franklin's not there, it's safe for her to be frequenting the place with more regularity. And she agrees, then peels off to go talk to New Kosh. She tells him that she was wrong, and someone on the station might have a piece of Kosh classic in them. But she doesn't say who. Bom, bom, bom. Da, da, da. But we're not done yet, because I promised yeah. you some garbage, and now we have some garbage to go over. Remember when Ivanova sent Baldi out to track down his runaway ex-boyfriend? Well now. Baldy, no stranger to stalking apparently, has no trouble with this task. Helps when you're the resident fascist and can access everyone's credit records. He surprises Franklin in one of the markets where Franklin is wandering around like a fucking tourist with a fucking Ziploc bag of yogurt raisins. I appreciate that a lack of medical ethics and dubious understanding of how consent works are much more significant problems with Franklin's character. But I'm not going to lie to you. The Ziploc bag of yogurt raisins really bothers me. It really does. It's a Ziploc bag. You can see the yellow and the green. I don't know why it offends me so much, but a Ziploc bag has no business being on Babylon 5. Give them a, give them a piece of Tupperware or like a little metal container. There's no Ziploc bags in the science store, man. Or what like some of that like iridescent cellophane or something. Right? I God, man, you couldn't have sent an intern to the science store 
at the mall and gotten like a weird container to put his goddamn yogurt raisins in? Get get a get a container of like moon ice cream or whatever the hell it is. Yeah, get him something. But the Ziploc bag, this has to have been something that the actor was just like noshing on between takes, and nobody told him to put it down. So he's just wandering around on set with this baggie of fucking zip yogurt raisins, and they just let him have it. Jude, at least now you know how I feel about Nutrigrain bars. I was offended by the Nutrigrain bars too. I just like Nutrigrain bars. So and I, I like yogurt raisins too. I'm just offended by the Ziploc bag. <laughs> this is what I don't get out of like watching on a, on like a, a, a low resolution for my rewatches. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would have picked up on this before, but it's crystal clear on HBO <laughs> the yellow strip and the green strip and the little crinkly bit of, above it, it's a fucking Ziploc bag. Anyway, Baldy asks him what the fuck he's doing walking from one end of the station to the other. And Franklin simply says, walk about, as if that's supposed to mean anything. And that gives him a very hackneyed metaphor about losing himself in his work and how he's got to find himself. And it's like, what are you, fucking 15? And then he says that the foundationists adopted the idea of walkabout from the aborigines back on Earth. The camera zooms in. Jude gives a slow, awkward side-eye, office-style. Right. Franklin keeps on talking. As always with the two of them, Baldy somehow comes across as sensible and sensitive, uh, and then tells him he sounds like a goddamn Nutter Butter bar, and also looks a little hurt, which I like. I like it when Baldy is being hurt, uh, and I particularly like that this is like an emotional wounding, which is always a little bit more (laughs) long-lasting. Um, but he looks legitimately like offended and, and hurt that Franklin just like peaced out and didn't tell him anything. And there's a, there's a part where he's like talking about how empty and meaningless his life was. And Garibaldi's face is just like, excuse me. Um, which I thought was particularly choice, uh, and makes this, uh, shipping just like, mm, bueno, <laughs> we're going to talk about the garbageness of the whole walkabout concept later. Uh, in the post show, but uh, let's keep going back on this shitty walkabout. Franklin hears a woman and immediately goes into predator mode, like a goddamn drone locking onto a target. He follows it into a bar where he grabs a glass of Yoohoo and settles in to lecherously gape at the singer. He waits there until the bar closes, drowsing over his Yoohoo like, un- like some sort of drunken ape until the singer approaches him. He hits her with a truly embarrassing line. Zathras, please put this God-fucking-forsaken line in here so that our audience can hear this nightmare line that would not work on any living, breathing human being of any (laughs) sexual or gender identity that has ever existed on any planet, space station, colony, ship anywhere that any sentient being has ever existed. You look like you're waiting for somebody. I was. Well, what happened? She just got here. Doesn't look like you're from this part of town. What's your story? Thanks. You a, you a businessman? You flying in, checking out the low rent spots for a little action or I live here. Oh, yeah? I'm a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, my mom always told me to marry a doctor. 
I just could never find one with the right equipment. <laughs> you know, I saw you watching me up there, and it was like two lasers shining out in the night. Two lasers. Two lasers. The Jatak has two lasers, and that seems to work real good. So maybe the White Star should have two lasers. Two lasers. I would like to point out, uh, I have it in my notes for later, but I'm going to point it out here, that JMS wrote the song that she's singing very well. No no diss to the performer, the actress playing uh, Kaylin, as she we will find out her name is uh, after they begin to f- flirt. I hate to say it, but that's true. Is a very talented singer. Um, but the song she's performing, <laughs> hoof, was written by JMS himself, uh, demonstrating that there are some things with words that he has no talent at, which is good to know. So yeah, they flirt. And honestly, I'm real uncomfortable with it. Uh, she apparently is not offended that he sat and stared at her like a piece of, like a butcher stares at a nice piece of meat. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, some people are into weird things. We don't kink shame on this podcast. So whatever. They end up back at her quarters, which is just unbelievable on top of unbelievable. Uh, She's slipped into some sort of like sexy robe kimono. Meanwhile, Franklin perches on the edge of his chair, wearing the exact same clothes and looking like a complete fuddy-duddy. At least least unbutton that top button, man. Right. I really expected him to be in like a leather harness and a gimp mask at this point, but Nope. He puts so much effort. He he is on walkabout, and his chest is still impeccably waxed. Like, buddy, come on, show it off. Right. If you're gonna go to that effort. Yeah. I I mean, so he's just sitting there, and she she does this thing where she's looking through her tumbler, and he's like, "What are you doing with that?" And she says, "I'm looking for your soul." And my immediate reaction on on watching this episode again for the first time was to literally choke on the the drink that I was drinking at the time. Was it Baja Blast? Yes, it was Baja Blast. I'm not at all joking. As if Franklin has a soul uh, to see through any sort of device or tumbler of any kind. Yeah, we're three seasons. So mean on this show. We're so mean. Look, (laughs) we love a lot about this show, just not Franklin. Or Garibaldi. Baldy at this point. Franklin is like Franklin Franklin has like personal issues. I don't think he's like evil like Garibaldi is. I disagree, and I'm gonna tell you why in the afternotes. As if I haven't made it clear. Fra- Franklin You just hold up. We're gonna talk about this. Okay. So she asks him what he's doing here, and he's like, I don't know. And she's like, That's a stupid answer. You're here to sleep with a beautiful woman. I, at this point, I'm just confused because like I'm just so used to Franklin being the sexual predator in any scene uh, that he's in that seeing him look confused uh, when presented with these sorts of situations is completely foreign. Uh, but he just says, "Is re- well, he makes some dumb word noise and looks confused. And then a few scenes later, uh, they're in bed, uh, which is a hell of a transition. They uh, wake up and uh, she basically hits him up for drugs. Uh, which is, you know, which of us have not ended up in that situation before in their past. Specifically, she asks for Metazine, a powerful prescription strength narcotic. Sounds awkwardly familiar. She is very, very defensive when he asks her about it. 
And then he immediately turns into the Franklin we recognize. Apparently, he just needed to get laid in order to come out of his shell. Uh, (laughs) He immediately becomes patronizing and patriarchal. Uh, He tells her she she should have so much better and he can take care of her. And maybe she wouldn't need medazine to sleep if she just didn't drink so much. And then he takes the glass out of her hand. She gets feisty with him a little bit and he says just don't just ask me for anything but that and then they go back to sleep but while he sleeps she gets up gets dressed and steals his identicard you can imagine what she's going to do with that when he does awake it's to a crash he discovers kaylin collapsed on the ground holding his card and a bottle of medazine looking distinctly worse for the wear. The, the costuming here, I'll note, is really good. They've got her, they've got like a real, like ashy tone to her skin. Yeah, yeah, you definitely can tell that she's not doing well. For like the makeup, you mean? Yeah, like the the, the makeup job on her is yeah. very well done. Uh, he rushes her to med lab where it takes him, I don't know, about three seconds to go ba- back to being a condescending and rude prick to Dr. Hobbs who shuts his ass down in about half that time uh, with some facts. It turns out Caitlin is not a junkie as he has been treating her. She's dying. Uh, She has a degenerative nerve condition, which is terminal and has about six months to live. She's been in incredible pain this whole time and has been taking the medicine to try and reduce that pain. Some of which I imagine explains why she'd sleep with Franklin. If my world was an endless Trump towards death of pain and misery, I might sleep with a walking monster like Franklin too, uh, just to feel something different, even if it was disgust. It also explains why she stole his Identicard, so she could go get the meds she needed and could no longer afford. Uh, apparently in space, they use the American medical system. Eventually she wakes up and they have a nice little chat where he ends up hooking her up with an unlimited line of service at MedLab. Nice to know that even in the future, you need someone to set up a GoFundMe for, it, for you to get through things. Uh, but he ends up ditching her in med lab, and the last we see of her, she's back on stage singing while Franklin creeps in the crowd and then walks away. Uh, I have so much. Where do we want to start with this? I have a few notes. Um, you know, I'm gonna start with I'm gonna start us off on like a a a a plot note, please, just yeah. to save us. Please, <laughs> I find it interesting that throughout all of media. Like, okay, if I tell you, what is the visual identifier for somebody who is psychic overly exerting themselves? Oh, they bleed from their face. Nosebleed. It's a nosebleed. It's a nosebleed specifically. That's what everybody uses. More or less. Why are you bleeding from the eye? (laughs) Yeah, and they like, they use that a lot. Or they, in B5, it's always the eyes or the ears. It's never the nose. Yeah. Which, which, like, I think that we even get some nosebleeds. It's in B five. It's like all head orifices are are fair game for blood. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a quote for you, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> I have a horror movie reference I can make, and that's gonna. And I, but I don't want people to Google that. So, <laughs> um, no, yeah, I that's that's true. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that B five is a lot more liberal about where blood can uh, spurt from than other franchises are. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if it has to do with like there's there's such a link with like eye um line of sight mm. and stuff like that for the human telepaths. So yeah, maybe you know 
Maybe yeah. maybe there's something along those lines. There's a funny thing too, where like she's got that she's got that like you know trickle of blood coming out of the corner of her, of her eye, and then like half a scene later, her face is completely clean, and it's like, come on, like yeah, at least like the blood's not going to come off that easily. Yeah, that shit is sticky. Yeah, uh, a couple of general notes about this episode. Uh, I already mentioned that JMS wrote the both of the god-awful songs in this episode. They're both very, like, 90s. 90s jazzy. They're like, yeah, they're yeah. like 90s, um, 90s restaurant jazz. They're the kind of thing you yeah. would expect to hear a Kenny G track played over. Well, that's probably too generous. They're not good enough for Kenny G. They're like early 90s sitcom songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, she she sings the hell out of them though. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, no disrespect to the actress. She she can belt it. She's got great pipes, honestly. Yeah. Uh other note, this was supposed to air before War Without End. Okay. I actually like I think that might like I'm not sure why, but that like it makes a lot more sense if you think of it happening as war before War Without End. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The shadow stuff, yeah. Yeah, like like with the shadow stuff, with the I, I think I think like where it gets put in the order after this makes it feel like a weird pickup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like like it feels like war. It feels like just with the with it feels like a lot more of an unnatural break in the series. Like war without end happened as its own thing almost. Yeah, the pacing makes more yeah. sense to have it go. I, I imagine it's also true with uh, Gray Seventeen. I would hazard to guess it was supposed to go walk about Gray Seventeen war without end. Bum, 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 um, bum, no, Gray Seventeen should would definitely come after War Without End. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, because of because the... it's about new, it's about the new Ranger. Oh, War. that's right, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, but I think, like then, yeah. If you if you put it if you put it before World Without End, then it's like they're taking immediate action on their new, you know, intel yeah. that rather than like, well, we have this new information, so now we're going to go back in time. And fuck around with B4, and then we'll do some stuff. I so here's the thing is I think this I think like if you put it in the correct order, it works for walkabout, but it does not work for season three. That that's my that's my take on that this. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because War Without like interlude and examinations is a much better to lead in to War yeah. Without End yeah. Yeah. than Walkabout. Um mostly just because um I don't think I think this episode like does some stuff that is like different from a lot of like what we've seen out of B5's like established I'm trying to think of the best way to put this but like it's established visual and language like we don't ever see a lot of diegetic music within B5 but instead we've got like we've got two instances of it one of which plays over the end credits and it feels just like weirdly out of place. Yeah, there is. We do. We do see another instance of like diegetic music later in the season, which is executed to much greater effect. Perfection. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I we'll think get you to meant perfection. Yeah. I think you meant perfection, Justin. Yeah. And that actually tracks with the other thing I was going to say about this episode. Uh, according to Lurker's Guide, JMS really loved this episode, <sighs> but not so much. Um, High praise, in fact, from JMS of this one. It's exceeded by Shadow Dancing, Zaha Doom, and Rock, but it ain't bad. Also, it's not not at the top, but it ain't bad. 
if you happen to be out of the house this coming Thursday and Miss Gray 17 is missing, you'll miss a little bit, but not a lot. It's okay. Wow, that is that is the most damning evidence I could ever see for Gray 17. Is oh. like is is JMSA it won't be bad if you miss it. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, like we you know, when we get to Gray 17, I was I was surprised by how much I actually liked it having like avoided it. But we'll I am, yeah. we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. But I thought it was funny that his comments about these two episodes was like meh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm um I'm very happy for like the next the second half of this episode where I get Gray 17 vindication. Yeah. One of the things I love about this episode is that we have Swedish meatballs as the carcinization of food. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like Swedish meatballs, like like it's a lump of protein. It's a lump of protein and gravy. Like that's that's really what it is. Yeah. Which I mean, if you look at Earth, there are common foods that appear throughout a lot of Earth culinary cultures. Noodles. They are generally we fried some dough or we fried some protein. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's like, you know, it, it, it makes sense that like something there is going to happen. I mean, it could also be that maybe the Vorlons are big Swedish meatball fans. And <laughs> so that across the galaxy. Oh, God, I, you nearly you nearly made me spray Diet Coke all over my desk. <laughs> I really like that scene. Jakar is so good in that scene. He's so excited to have this guy back at the station and he's so welcoming and warm and engaged. And it's such a different version of Jakar than we saw in the past. Imagine season one Jakar in that scene. And it's, it's a thing where like, he's finally getting to interact with another Narn in a situation where he doesn't have to just be the leader. Right. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. like he's been, he, he has to be the boss around other Narns. And I mean, ultimately he kind of has to be the boss to Nicole, Nicole played by Robin Sachs. Um, yeah, like it was, I mean, ultimately he, ultimately the, the Shikar conflict is that, you know, he needs to kind of step up and be the boss to Nikal as well, unfortunately. Yeah. But he had, he had a nice time. Maybe he just needs to be able to strike a balance because, you know, you can, you can be a leader and not be completely isolated. I read it differently. I read this as Jakar is excited to have this Narn ship here and he has a new vision for what Narns are where Narn is going and what Narns should be doing that is in line with the vision he had and the philosophy he's been developing since he's been in prison and this ship shows up and it's like a blast from the past because this ship and its captain are very much season one Jakar there we're in the fight when do we strike back? And he's like, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're, we're, we're doing this other thing now. And Nicole is like, okay, cool, I guess. And they're on board to protect B5 because it's important to the resistance. B5 yeah. is a place where they can be safe and resupply and whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's 100% not on board with like risking their, their resources and endangering their, their few ships on some wackadoo errand that Sheridan has cooked up. And I think that Jakar is not sure at this stage how to be 
the fusion of those two things. He's he's thus far he has led by simply be by pure charisma. I don't think he's had to lead mm-hmm. an unwilling and he's had to lead the unwilling yet. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what what Baldy is like trying to like what that scene with Baldy is is about. I didn't love that scene cuz I I feel like it's super condescending of him to come in and try and like jabber on about like proper military obedience and and honor and mm-hmm. stuff given that this is a guy for whom like military discipline is a fucking joke and the only part of like he likes security because it puts him in power but he doesn't actually have any particular respect for yeah the chain of command or anything like that um he doesn't even like Sheridan all that much he he respected Sinclair but he's always been very tepid on Sheridan so his indignation is kind of horseshit and the fact that he would take that to Jakar of all people a guy who has lived that that you know that kind of life of sacrifice and so forth is crap but we got to see Jakar in the sexy chess piece so i'm willing to you know make some sacrifices yeah. to see that again yeah i i always wonder as well whether either of them ever like spoke of the interaction ever again probably not yeah. I love that when he comes in, Baldy's all in a, in, a, in a hissy tizzy and he bops the book down on the table and J- and Jakar flinches. And yeah. He flinches and then he touches the book and touches his forehead. And I love that moment that they, that it's such a nice little moment. And if you're watching, you miss it if you're not looking for it. Some, almost. Yeah. But I yeah. love that, like, and I almost hope that, like, Katsulis, like, got so familiar with the character that he didn't even need direction for that kind of thing. He just yeah. knew that, like, if you abuse the book, you have to, like, touch it. Like, you have to do this thing. And it's great. I yeah. love that moment. It's like, do do not thump the book of Jaquan. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I mean, the Franklin plot Yeah, sucks. I have Franklin. Okay, so I'm going to try and But you covered be, that. <laughs> I'm going to try and be really uh, – I have a few specific points I want to make about why this plot sucks. First, I don't like that every time there is a sexy woman – that is not an alien and is not white. She's there for Franklin to bang. The only exception to this is Catherine Sakai, but she was age Asian, and that doesn't count apparently. Well, no, she was a, she was Sarah, she was she was Sinclair's love. Interest. Yeah, and she was that's Sinclair's the, love interest. That's the reason why. But I mean, I'm not even being hyperbolic. Like, yeah, no, it is it is a record. Like we could we could record that pretty easily with the phenomenon, like as a phenomenon of the yeah, show. and that's yeah. And I'm not even talking about like that was like not great for then. And if you try to do that on TV today, that'd be that would be some aggressive horse shit. And it's just bad. It it it's just yeah. It's just shitty. I mean, I can spin it as being you know he's like a serial killer and he has a type, and like I can make up all kinds of jokes I want about it. But like the at the end of the day, like it's racist. It's just it's just yeah. racist and uh. Yeah. It's it's not my favorite thing to find in this show that I enjoy. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know, at the at the end of the day, it's not the character choosing who he wants to have a fling with. It's the writers writing these god awful, morally dubious romance plots for him exclusive like with the only women of color who end up on the show. Yeah. Almost all of whom are in some way uh victims for him to exploit uh with his medical 
expertise. Uh, yeah, it's just gross. Like, don't I mean we love to 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 shit on Franklin, and, and for good cause. And these these relate these relationships that he engages in are all super shite. Uh, the other problem I have is uh, walkabout in general. I don't love that it his religion uh, in air quotes is essentially appropriation the religion um yeah. i am i i get that syncretism is a thing and there's a mm-hmm. legitimate like religious path and process by which that happens but it's organic <laughs> like true religious syncretism is not a thing where you'd be like hey that thing the aborigines do not like giving them a more nuanced description or like Australian Aborigines or like whatever, like right. a place. Yeah. They're just them Indians do just saying that seems cool. I'm going to take that whole thing and just, just chop it out of your culture and just make that part of my religion. Now, like that rubs me wrong in like off the top of my head, like five different ways. Walk about as like, as I understand it as somebody who has never visited Australia and, and, uh, is pretty white. As I understand, it's a rite of passage. Like, it's not a... The way that, like, Western media likes to present it is very much like what Australian tourism has made walkabout into. Yeah. Um, which, like, it, which is very, like, removed from the uh, original culture it's from. Yeah. And... I, as far as I know, there were not any Australian Aboriginal people who were involved in the production or writing of this episode. No, of course not. And yeah, so it's really just like it's taking the name of something and taking your very like basic like pop culture understanding of a cultural tradition and then changing it to fit your plot. Yeah, it's the White Wolf like, Clan book religion. <laughs> I hate you. It's what it is. Foundationalism <laughs> is like the White Wolf clan book religion. It's just like grabbing a rand like a random, not even like a Wikipedia, like a, an Encyclopedia Britannica definition of of some cultural object and spinning it off into some other random thing and then jamming it together and making a werewolf clan out of it. Honest to God, if you told me that the person who came up with foundationalism for Franklin also wrote for White Wolf in the 90s, I would be like, yeah, that checks out. It's unfortunate because the the idea of religion springing up in the wake of getting getting out to space and meeting aliens, etc., is really interesting. And then the one that we really see is crap. Yeah. But and his first- through the lens of Franklin, who's maybe just like, you know... An awful practitioner yeah. of well, and the first description it. we get of foundationalism isn't bad. It's just this expansion of it in this episode is particularly bad. His original description yeah. of it is okay. It's like I can't remember exactly what he says about it, but I remember being completely unoffended by it then. It's just yeah, this it's- wholesale appropriation as religious practice thing that I I take real offense to. Yeah, as I remember it, it's like it's a very um it's a very modern view of religion of like God is out in the world and the best way we can understand God is by learning all of life's mysteries. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the, that was like the that was like the super basic version of it. And I like that I liked that when it was originally there and it was like that sounds interesting. But then 
we just get this tossed in. I think that I think the biggest problem with it for me is the the way that it's phrased as, you know, this is a thing that we adopted from the Australian Aborigines, rather than this is a thing that the Australian Aborigines who are part of foundationalism brought to it or something like yeah, that. It's, it's like that. I think that's that it's like the, the thing of like adopting it rather than somebody who already practiced that bringing it in. I think it's like, it's co-opting it instead of incorporating it. Right. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah, like there might be a better word than incorporating, but like, you know, um, I, the other way you could, I think you could do this is if like, I think if you decide that, no, I don't want to bring on any people of Australian Aboriginal descent or even factor that into the episode, you could easily, you have an out for this. Franklin spent a decade going around and experiencing alien cultures. He could say something like simply like, yeah, this is like, uh, this is a thing that Narn, like the Narn will do or or, or it's like, I pick this up while working with a Burkir. Yeah. Yeah. Or on a Burkiri merchant vessel, and they'll do this thing, and it's like, and, and like you could say like, oh yeah, that okay, yeah, if that works for you, especially sure. since it's so far from the actual thing he's he's exactly like, yeah. they didn't adopt it from the the Australian Aborigines, like they made up some horse shit and then Slapped gave the label it, on yeah, it. put a name on it that is because it's vaguely similar because there's walking involved basically, yeah, <laughs> it's. Yeah, it's real dumb. So that was my last note uh, about this episode. I hate everything about this B-plot with with Franklin. Uh, I hated it the first time I saw it. I've hated it every time since. She can sing. Good for her. She was apparently a moderately well-known actress at the time. So that was a good pickup for them to have her on the show. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. The other thing that really bothers me is when when she asks Franklin for the medazine. And oh, God, yeah. Could he be a bigger horse's ass in that scene? Right, because because instead of being like, you know, oh, you know, why, why are you having trouble sleeping? Or like delving into it in any way, he just flips straight to making assumptions about her and then being like, oh, if you didn't drink so much, you'd sleep better. Yeah, like what, somebody might ask... Oh yeah, if you ha- if you have issues sleeping and you drink a lot, well, why might that be? Right, you know, like a medical practitioner, and and then <sighs> she might like open up about her condition or something rather than like oh well, and and I felt like the acting from her was actually quite good on that. That yeah. he says that and she shuts down yeah. immediately. Yeah. That like he says that and and her body language is just like oh oh I thought he was cool, but no, he's he's a. He's a dick. Jackass. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like, I like the idea of Franklin. And I wish he wasn't the, I wish he wasn't the character that we ragged on the most yeah. here. No, I... Or, yeah. or ragged on in the top two here. Because I think it's, like, a doctor who experiences alien cultures. And, like... Do you know, do you know what I think, like... Uh, yeah, okay, let's go, let's go to our alternate universe where the three of us get to remake mm-hmm. Babylon yep. 5. Mm-hmm. Where we rename the Cortez and everything. Yeah. Do you know what I would draw for inspiration for... Franklin flocks from Enterprise. I was just about to say that. Because he's like, you know, just make him eccentric, sure, because he spent all his time with alien cultures, but like instead of the science speaker to say like, oh yeah, I have this I have this like 
Centauri lizard I keep in the back because it's the only way I can brew this one antitoxin that works way better than it should. Like, yeah. make him a little weird. Like, like, but and give him that sort of energy, or like, or like maybe maybe he could be like super into plants, right? And have like yeah. tons of weird plants yeah. in med lab. Yeah, I just think I think there's just like there there's a there's an interesting like I like the core concept of the character, but just the writing just absolutely kills me. It's like they they were so dedicated to like having having him have the subplot and like yeah. No, I think in in our reboot there's so many better ways you can Here's the problem. I think that they couldn't decide what they wanted to do with Franklin because he had no mm-hmm. point of existing. He had no no relevance to the the main plot. So he's just a yeah. he's he's just a wheel for B plots. And as a consequence, they they just hang all kinds of weird shit on him. And they couldn't decide whether they wanted it to be do the, do they want him to be the guy that's seen all the alien stuff or do they want him to be the addict or what do they what do they want to do with him? And what they ended up doing with mm-hmm. him was they took a '90s doctor trope. He here's the the hard bitten doctor trope from '90s dramas. He, he's Doctor House. Y- yeah, yeah. They took this standard doctor trope and then they just pushed B plots through him and developed a character that way. And you ended up with a crappy doctor. I think they definitely could have gone a lot of different ways with him. They could have. I think that they could have gone with leaned into that angle of like, he's been everywhere, seen everything. I think they could have gone with the angle of this is the, the rebel doctor, the one who wants to treat everyone. They could have made him the iconoclast that wants to help everyone, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what it costs. There's so many different ways you could have taken that character other than, sex pest and think about the episodes where he's the best he he's great in the uh in confessions and lamentations okay the one where where there's the telepath underground railroad he's very solid in that Mm -hmm. like those are the doctor that like those are the characteristics that we'd like to see where like maybe he can be brusque or standoffish like he's more of the surgeon and less of the gp yeah but you know they didn't have to they didn't have to like hang all of these like if they just got rid of all of the air quotes romance subplots for him it'd be it'd be basically fine yeah i've seen occasional people i've interacted with regarding the show have jokingly called it um, like it's it's sci-fi's first attempt at long-form storytelling. If you sacrifice everything at the altar of the main plot, and things like Franklin can like really push that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Because he doesn't have any use in the main plot, he languishes. Yep. If they if they just kept him like consistent without any major character development, I think it would have been fine. Yeah. Like, hey, it's the it's the like kind of prickly doctor. Sure, whatever. Yeah. Um, but having all of the air quotes of romance plots hanging on him. Ugh. Something I did want to note about is that uh, Kosh Zero. Um, <laughs> or, <laughs> diet um, Kosh. So, yeah, like, uh, no, I don't, I'm not ripping on Diet Coke. Kosh Crystal. Here. Kosh Crystal um, <laughs> is 
that the so this is entirely a perception thing I think with me, but um the the design for Kosh Crystal's uh like crest, the way it rises up and uh creates this like sort of like cooler handles. Well no, it's 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 old school freaky angel. Yeah, I mm-hmm. see what you mean. Which which it, it's I I go with Dracula cloak. Well, I mean, no, I'm specifically talking about, like, the horns. Okay, yeah. The horn look. The horn look makes it look very, it makes it look angelic, but not the angel that we're used to seeing with the actual Vorlons outside of their counter shoe, but, like, the old old creepy angels that are described in the Old Testament that, like, have to announce those saying, have to announce themselves by saying, do not be afraid. (laughs) Book Book of Enoch angels. Yeah, but I also think it's also like it has a much more sinister appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and with that and I think a little bit lower placement of the head and a different shape of the the head, like we can compare the two. But I think it gives it sort of like a hun- like an almost hunched look compared mm-hmm. to Kosh Classic, mm-hmm. uh, and much more much more like angular. On yeah. the encounter suit, um, yeah. t- to me, the protruding bits always looked like the edges of like, like you know, Dracula's cloak type of thing, where it's like a a big collar and like you're just seeing the edges of it in the animation or whatever. Yeah, what it is is that I fuck, fuck. Oh no, New Kosh is Mister Sinister. Oh God, it's true. Fuck. Holy shit. I don't understand this, but apparently. Um, so, oh just, my so, God. Otta, I just need you to Google search Mr. Sinister, and, and it has to be an image search. Okay. And I want you to look at any, any image that involves a cape. Wow. Yep. It's the color scheme and the cloak. It's the whole thing. Wow. That that sure that sure is a thing. Dang. <laughs> Gosh, man, that's 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 where we got to end our discussion on this yeah. one. Because I don't think I could top that. <laughs> that's bananas. We do have the return of Robin Sachs here. Yes, uh, who is again astounding. We yep. love him. I, I I don't. I I hope he'll return again as Nicole. Um, or somebody. God, I mean, he, Maybe. he's underneath half of the the half of the 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 alien heads in this show. So <laughs> I'm sure he'll be back. Yeah, he, he's got a great voice, so I'm I'm down with that. All right, on to uh, half of a good episode and half of a forgettable garbage episode. Jude, Anna, how we doing? Still uh, angry about walkabout. Um, this is this is second. This is our second half of our recording tonight, folks. Yeah, so, surprise, surprise but all this might that, be cut. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it's a mystery. Um, yeah, so, surprised that we went so long with walkabout, and um, excited to see what happens with Gray Seventeen. Other than the creepy trank dummy, which is never a surprise. I think it's the most excited anyone's ever been about Grey 17 yeah, this in is like, history. This is, like, this is a widely derided episode. Not even JMS was excited about Grey 17. It's a, this is a weird episode. Yeah. But we're going to talk about it. We're going we're gonna, to... Uh, I'm going to stand for Grey 17 tonight. 
That's because it's got Marcus content. Yeah. And I, I, I've got a, I've got a question for you two this time. Yeah. Okay. So of of the the new Ranger One ceremony, we saw lots of clips of that. Delenn randomly holding a glass of wine and like somebody putting a blanket on the floor. What was your favorite part that we didn't see? Uh, my favorite part that we didn't see was the part where she took the ring out of the envelope and threw it into the fire and then pulled the ring out of the fire and said, it's quite cool. And then read the, 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 the golden, the, the, the fiery letters off the outside of the ring in the black speech. <laughs> oh, I'm so but glad not, that you did a Lord of the Rings one. <laughs> but it wasn't a Lord of the Rings reference because JMS doesn't do Lord of the Rings references. Cool. I've got another Lord of the Rings references, which is not a Lord of the Rings reference. Um, you have to, um, part of the ceremony, um, it's done during some of the other parts, but it's in the background. A uh, Minbari priest will recite from memory the lineage of the new Entelzah, dating all the way back to Valen. <laughs> so it'll be Deled, daughter of son of son of I think I'm gonna go with the the part where they eat the red fruit snacks. <laughs> because those are the best flavor of fruit snacks. Uh Scooby Doo's or Gushers or what are we talking the, the about? Welsh's, the Welsh's. The Welsh's. Oh, okay. Fair enough. That you get you get in the giant pack at Costco's. Yeah. Those are good. Fuck yeah. Man, now I want fruit snacks. You know, you know the you know what like long services, rituals, whatever have um I just want to imagine like a like a ranger initiate or ranger in training who hasn't like finished his thing getting put on 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 orange slices duty <laughs> just having to walk around with like a communion tray but it's just orange slices just and like, fruit snacks yeah yeah i'm imagining like strawberry a flavor. ranger a ranger initiate like off on the side of the aisle just like jamming handfuls of those <laughs> red berry things into his mouth okay all right take us away Justin. Yeah, um, so this is going to be episode 319. Grace 17 is Missing, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by John Zeeflin III. Um, there's uh, A plot and B plot. They are fairly disconnected, so we have, for once in my summaries, um, pure quarantine. Let's start with the A plot. I don't know. This isn't the one that the episode is named after, but it it feels like the A plot. Yeah, it. it I would say that this is the A plot um, and this is one of the well, we can talk about this after your summary and about my our, our like perceptions of the episode. So we start with a little quick scene of telepaths lining up to become part of the war effort. Um, and Zach is having to shut down a faker, uh, which is the fun little thing. Sheridan regrets having to be this open about needing telepaths, but most recruits are bailing out once they find out that it's to fight the shadows. Ivanova suggests maybe contacting Franklin to see about finding any telepaths he helped in his underground railroad, and they decide to go look for him on Walkabout. After the theme song, we see Delet on Minbar, who is talking with uh, Ruthen, aka Time Winters, uh, <laughs> to take a look at Sinclair's belongings. Uh, Ruthen mentioned that Sinclair always felt he was only visiting this life, like he was supposed to be somewhere else or somewhere. That's the kind of like portentous Minbari horseshit that they say that is like, <laughs> it sounds real impressive, like after, 
but nobody said that when they were when he was around. Like yeah. nobody said Sinclair just you're just visiting this life. Like shut the fuck up, Rat then. <laughs> yeah, the two of them discuss that with the loss of Ranger One, there must be a new leader. Ruthen believes that that new Ranger One is Delen. She protests, but Ruthen explains that she is needed. She eventually agrees. Back on the station, Ivanova visits the alien bar and finds Franklin hiding in what looks like an alien confessional booth. He is going through withdrawal and he is having a rough time of it. Franklin explains that he has a backup of the railroad files, but he will only give it if people stop visiting him with the B plot. <laughs> Ivanova relents and Franklin tells her where to find the files. Uh, Delenn has later returned to Babylon 5 and Sheridan is enthusiastic about the choice. Delenn says it might be a little unpopular with some of Nabari, but they will have the ceremony appointing her on the station. After Sheridan is called away, motherfucking elite Naroon shows up and starts to accuse Delenn of power grabbing. He says that now that the Rangers are ready to be activated, the warrior cast will take command. I love that he says that you're power grabbing. Now I'm going to take control of your army. Like, fuck off. Do you not see... I'm, no, I'm sorry. I'm worst. like literally. I'm, I literally have Nerud no words. Nerud is a Republican. For... We can we can all say it. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Nerud continue. claims that she is a religious zealot, and he demands that she walk away and refuse the position of Ranger One. Uh, Delenn explains this to explains what happened to Lanier, and she she does not think that uh, Nerud will try to kill her, even though he said, "I will stop this by any means necessary." Lanier wants to go to the captain because Lanier is a fucking good boy, uh, but she makes him promise not to tell. Lanier instead goes to visit Marcus, who is not part of the chain of command, and will, I don't know, maybe not tell Sheridan so he can avoid breaking his promise. This is the this is the most roundabout logic, and Marcus even calls him on about he's like, wow, what martial arts school did you go to? <laughs> to, to dodge this. But uh, Marcus does eventually agree to help. He asks for Lanier's help in fighting Darude, and Marcus states that he will handle it. Uh, the ranger ceremony is being prepared, and Delenn and John talk while waiting for the next group of visitors to arrive on the station. John mentions that uh, Delenn does not talk about her family much. Delenn explains that her father passed 10 years ago, uh, that the Earthman Bari War ended up breaking his heart. She recounts the story of her father taking her to temple when she was young, uh, that he would hold her on his shoulders every day, every time they went. And the day that she realized that uh, he would not carry her in his arms again when she grew too big. It's a very touching scene. I love this one. As Narun tries to interrupt the ceremony once it gets going, uh, Marcus stops him before he can enter. Marcus invokes Den Shaw, a fight to the death. We get a, a staff fight here, which is some Star Trek tier choreography. Um, the <laughs> ceremony proceeds and Marcus continues in a delaying fight. Nerun urges Marcus to run away, but Marcus refuses to surrender or run, exclaiming that I am a ranger. We walk in the dark places. No one will enter. We stand on the bridge and no one may pass. We live for the blood. We will die for the blood. Uh, but remember, folks, uh, there is nothing here that would even make you think of Lord of the Rings. There is nothing I can imagine. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, just I'm, nothing. I'm, I'm just pausing here for our listeners to just... Uh, unceremoniously snort. Uh, Narun is winning, and he asks why he persists even if Marcus knows he will not win. 
Marcus answers that this is for Delenn, that he would die for her in Valen's name. We cut back to the ceremony, where as Delenn is declared Ranger 1, Narun enters. He tosses his staff on the ground and says that the Rangers would not die for him, but they would die for her. The, the staff, by the way, is covered in what I have to assume is raspberry jam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because at, th- at this because point... Because Marcus is such a sweet boy. <laughs> well, at this point, the blood would have oxidized at least somewhat and not be like raspberry jam red. Who knows? Maybe they were fighting just like right outside. I'm going to go with my answer. I feel like I've got the, yeah. the truth of it there. I mean, that is that is fair. Marcus is taken to med lab and Delenn regrets that Marcus was hurt for her. Lanier explains this is what she must understand. That like people are going to die and get hurt in this war, but this, this doesn't have to be all on her. Uh, Narun comes into the room and asks to speak with Marcus alone, one warrior to another. Narun says that their fight was to the death, but it was to his death. Uh, for a human to want to die for him in Bari and invoke Valen's name while he wanted to kill him in Bari, well, he realized he was lost. The two of them may not be of the same blood, but they are of the same heart. Marcus, in an exhausted state, asks that next time you went to Revelation, could you possibly find a way that isn't so uncomfortable? Narun laughs, and it is the fucking creepiest thing in this series. I I don't remember the actor's name for Elite Narun, but his laugh is fucking terrifying. It's a, it's a good laugh. It, it it's a good laugh. I like it. It's it, he does a bang up job of it. Um, it's like if like I do not want to hear this person laugh ever again. Um, our B plot starts with a technician who is trying to find a power drain in Gray Sixteen. And he finds that there's something wrong. Before he can report in, something drags him down into a power junction. We then cut to Garibaldi, who just has a fucking gun like a 38 Smith and Wesson. It was his grandma's, because all cops are bastards, is a genetic disorder, apparently. Well, see, see, this goes with every time I see the acronym ACAB, my brain immediately jumps to assigned cop at birth. <laughs> And maybe this is true for Garibaldi. Yeah, it's possible, yeah. They talk about the missing gray stacker technician, and Garibaldi decides, what the hell? It's not like I have an important religious function that needs protecting. Let's just do this. Uh, I'll go I'll go do this on my own. Garibaldi talks to the, about the missing technician with his supervisor. The supervisor says they've checked all 29 levels of gray sector. Garibaldi says there should be 30 levels. But the supervisor says, no, that was a mistake in the schematics. Gray, gray 17 doesn't exist. Motherfucker, is this wayside story? <laughs> <laughs> JMS, did you, or did you force me to watch a horror, a bad horror version of Wayside Stories 419? Anyways, just going to pass that on here. My rage is subsuming. Or maybe subduing. Whatever. Um... Garibaldi decides to go through the elevator and, in what I assume is a great use of his time, decides to just go to every single level. Um, he finds that there is a gap between grade 16 and grade 18. He decides to have an emergency stop between the two levels, orders the door open, and then just walks out into grade 17, which is uh, covered in junk and wire. This section looks like it has been sealed off. There is no way to, cu- to call the lift. The panel is broken. Uh, Garibaldi takes like three steps into Gray 17 and the door shuts behind him because he's a 
you get it? Because just like, I don't know. I feel like Garibaldi is at least usually like competent. Yeah, he, he should be the one to remember to prop the door. Yeah, but he has entered a horror movie, which means that he is less competent than a final girl. <laughs> he, he, he now has two brain cells. Yeah, he now has two brain cells. They don't rub together, and he is set for a first act death. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is not going to be the case. Garibaldi starts to explore Gray 17 and finds a creepy doll, which shoots a trach dart out of his eye. Well, well, talking. We we can't we can't discount the fact that this that this like ventriloquist dummy talks to Garibaldi. Yeah. So Garibaldi wakes up without his link or weapon and finds a whole group of people here. They are led by a man called Jeremiah, and he welcomes Garibaldi to the end of the world. He says that they are close to the end, but you know what? Garibaldi decides that he does not want to be in this cult horror film, and he just wants to get out here. But he is forced to listen to at least some of their drivel. The cult here is actually using a variant of Midbari mysticism, though they never actually specifically state that, but that they are the universe trying to understand itself. They are isolating themselves from the outside world as a way to better understand themselves so that the door will open. I'm going to gloss over the next 10 minutes of television very quickly. As Garibaldi tries to escape, Jeremiah explains that once the universe understands itself, it will experience a new Big Bang, remaking everything to be perfect. Garibaldi takes Jeremiah hostage after faking a cramp and forces him to show him the exit. <laughs> As they move through, they find a missing worker's uniform. Jeremiah explains they did not do it. They do not believe in violence. It is, in fact, a Zarg, one of the most dangerous aliens in the sector, which is just a man in a suit. Um, Garibaldi burns some steam in the alien's face and, and then finds the bullets for the revolver in his pocket and loads them into a metal pipe to shoot the alien. The Zarg dies. They find a way out and God, what the hell did I just watch? Um, Garibaldi goes to visit Sheridan and in a fun version of the trope, Garibaldi's like, wow, you would not believe the day I had. And Sheridan was like, dude, we just had a fucking assassination attempt. Where the fuck were you? Marcus was beaten within the inch of his life. <laughs> and that's Grey 17 is missing. We're just going to forget some stuff here. <laughs> so The Baja Blast has some rub in it now. <laughs> so it's it's funny because, like, I think it's because this episode is named after the the Garibaldi plot. My memory apparently is incapable of comprehending that the whole Ranger One plot is in the same episode as the Garibaldi plot. Which is a legitimately good plot, too. Right, because the only thing I ever yeah. remember about Grey 17 is like Garibaldi measuring the elevator time and going on to the floor and getting shot by like a trank dummy. Yeah. That's the only thing I remember, but the rest is actually good. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. There's a, a, there's a decent, I would say like a low B, high C, B5 episode, and then a low D, high F. Absolute stinker of a season. Uh, low D, high F, like Star Trek Voyager episode. 
<laughs> mashed together here. It's it's a season one episode. Let's just be real here. It's a season one episode that got shoved into a season three episode. Or it's like Exogenesis too. Yeah. I would yeah. say that I would say that it's about the same caliber. Yeah. It's God, it's a weird episode. I really love the stuff with Marcus because Marcus is terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that he's the just, Cheryl Lynn stuff is great. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Marcus has this weird balance of I'm too cool to care and be like into being a ranger, but also I'm like the best ranger. Uh, and <laughs> and I actually do care. Yeah, he's such a he's such a dork. And then I also love that he's just so pure. Yeah. Uh, God, he's just the best. And Narun is so good for him to face off against here. Yeah, he's the perfect foil for Marcus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Narun is also like, you want to hate him and like, you do hate him, but he's so compelling. He's a zealot. And yeah. they're, they're both dedicated to their ideals. The difference is Narun is dedicated to the primacy of his own, of his stupid self-interested faction aka a republican and marcus is a selfless himbo paragon of the rangers who are dedicated to helping everyone else and it's hard to not love him for that and narun you just want to fire into the sun uh on a rocket made of garbage uh (laughs) so yeah i yeah i I really hate the I watched this episode again and I could not believe how like physically uncomfortable with how dumb the Gray 17 stuff was. Like it was it was a physical it was an exercise in physical restraint to not skip over every scene that took place in Gray 17. Yeah, and I I think that's the thing is that like, you know, in in a rewatch, like the Gray 17 part starts pretty early, right? Yeah. I think it's even in the first scene. Um, and you get to that and you're just like, no, no, we're we're done here. Skip. Yeah. And I feel like the episode also did itself a they, they did it a disservice by naming it after the Gray 17 plot, because that's the only thing you remember. Yeah. Also, speaking of things that I misremember about this episode, somehow I am always convinced that's a knockaline feeder. <laughs> Which would no, be better. It's a Zarg. It's a Zarg. It would be better if it was a Nakaline feeder, because then we could talk about that. That would be great. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, who the hell names their, like, alien monster thing a Zarg? Well, like, this is a Rick and Morty. Yeah, it does. It is a Rick and Morty sounding name. But it's also, like, the worst looking monster we've had in a long time. Like, it's, it's like a Gorn. Yeah, it is. It's a fucking Gorn, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a Gorn, and, like, the the. I mean, it's a suit with a bunch of claws taped onto it, and they hide it by putting it behind steam. That's really what they did. Yeah, these, these two it, episodes. Oh my god, both it, it is stinkers on the 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 like practical effects budget. See, the, the thing is, this. Oh no, this is that episode with the Gorn because Garibaldi even has a similar way of defeating it. That's. Oh my god, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to. He was trying to do a dunk on the Gorn episode with this one. Do you know what I find hilarious, though, about the the whole Grey 17 plot line? Is that they have possibly one of, like, the best 
physical actors in like American film standing right next to Garibaldi. <laughs> and they just decide that we're going to do this like creepy horror plot and they don't have the dude who is like a great physical actor and who is, you know, fucking Freddy Krueger <laughs> do, doing anything but cowering next to him. <laughs> yeah. This, is a God, uh. it's a, this episode is a goddamn shame. And see, the, th- the funny thing is, like, the, the whole thing of, like, you know, a whole floor on in a, like, untraveled maintenance area of the station getting taken over by, like, a weeb cult is actually pretty compelling. It's just, like, they gave it to Garibaldi. Yeah. Like, like if this had been if this had been Sheridan in the front half of season two, it would be pretty solid. It would be hilarious because he'd be like, oh, tell me more. Yeah, like, like that would have been fun. But no, it's Garibaldi and it's the back third of season three. It's sandwiched between War Without End and Rock Cried Out No Hiding Place. Yeah. yeah. Like the most incongruous positioning. And I think he knows it too. Like, I think that's why JMS is so tepid on this episode. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because the, the rest yeah. of the episode is quite solid. Yeah. I, I think it's like, it's a very, like, there's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like, there's, there's some really solid stuff in the, the Delenn plot line, even though it's like, it's a pretty like zoomed out plot line for like compared to it because they're like the central conflict doesn't even really involve Delenn even mm-hmm. though she gets some good character moments in it. it it's a, um, like we get to, we get to have some stuff where we get to see like Lanier sort of breaking a promise by not breaking or not breaking a promise by breaking a promise. Yeah. It feels like it's two B plots stapled together in yeah. some ways, but I think it works pretty well. Like for like what it is, and we get like a really like fantastic Marcus moment. And, May, and like this feels like a it, it feels like a very good pivot point for what we will see in the future from the Minbari, whatever that is. Yeah, agreed. Like it's it's a middle point that you have to get through, but like, but it, it does that well. Like, okay, Delenn is now the head of the Ranger. She's Entelzah. the The Warrior cast now is going to go through some shit. I'm looking forward to see where that goes. Um, I expect it's going to go badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, just just taking a guess here. <laughs> I don't like this laugh. Oh, and and speaking of like uh like good practical effects or or whatever, the cinematography on the fight scene between Marcus and Naroon is stellar. Yeah. Where they've got the the like light going through that fan mm-hmm. and it's like the shifting shadows is very good. Yeah. For for a scene that is just uh it, it's a it, it we're gonna call it what it is it's a Star Trek stick fight it's what it is <laughs> it's just two dudes just like hitting each other with long sticks that is like completely forgettable it's shot very well <laughs> yeah and that sell and that sells the scene for it being like a good emotional moment it's it's shot very well and the banter is good yeah. The, the fight itself is unremarkable, but but it's got good banter and good lighting. Do you think that the actor who played Naroon used his botleth's knowledge 
in that fight. Who is uh, like what is his uh, actor uh, John Vickery? I don't think so. So the only time he played, so he he did play a Klingon in Star Trek, but he played a Klingon lawyer. Oh, that! Fucker. Are you trying to are you trying to tell me that they don't use botleths in Klingon law? Yeah, fuck you. I don't. I'm think sorry. That. I'm sorry. But if there is if there is a place where they use where they use bladed objects in the law, besides the moon in Ian McDonald's excellent novel series Luna, which you should read, god damn you! I've been harping on this for a while now. Uh, it's it's Klingons. on my it's on my phone. <laughs> Klingons for sure have provisions in the law for shanking each other with giant sword knives. Jude, they use the batlefts to cut through the red tape. <laughs> so I'm looking at stills from this episode. I am not seeing any batlefts involved. So and this and this would have been like eight years after uh, B five. Oh, he did that after B5? Yeah. Well, that's no fun. Yeah, yep. no, no. So sadly, no. He played a Cardassian on Deep Space Nine. Did that Cardassian try and have sex with, uh, what's his name? <laughs> um, I don't think so. That's unfortunately not as specific as you might think. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, what's his, the, the, uh, Bashir. No, he did not. Um, he's like Cardassian. The, yeah. Yeah, no. In in other weird things, so Franklin apparently gave the Underground Railroad files on his computer codename Harriet, which like how he didn't even put like an exclamation point. <laughs> Frank or... Franklin, like like buddy, just just call it anything else. Like like it's the, anybody's gonna see that and be like, that's clearly where the Underground Railroad stuff is. Yeah, yeah, it's. I have so much problems. This is one of those places where I appreciate that I'm being pedantic because I work in computers and I spend all of my days involved in, I have a very weird job because my job is, it's like intersectional. It's about how software gets built, but also how networks happen and how machines stay up. So I, I have my little my little fingers in all sorts of little paint pots about how software and networking and all that stuff works. And as a result, I feel like I, I, I have sort of like an over-exaggerated perception of like how obvious some of this should be. Like, <laughs> but, you know, like I get that not everybody's interested in seeing like how information technology is going to evolve in the future, I guess is my point. Comma, that said, can we at least agree that saying your password for top secret files out loud in order to access them is poor security? And then having it just be a related word like Harriet for Harriet Tubman when on your underground railroad files is fucking joke nonsense. Like you might as well just print them out and stuff them under your mattress at this point. I mean, at least put them in the folder marked porn. Yeah, God, you think anybody wants to see what's in Franklin's porn file? <laughs> it's oh. all Garibaldi. I was just going to say, it's all, all the files are named like Garibaldi 1, Garibaldi 2, Garibaldi 3. Nobody would open that. <laughs> you broke Justin. Justin is just like, <laughs> I'm not engaging with that thought. Between this and allergies, yeah. Um, God, I'm still a lot over the fact that like, okay, 
I sort of kind of like his character in this, and I like the weird, like, Mimbari weeb cult that popped up here, but I cannot believe that they had fucking Freddy Krueger on as just, like, no prosthetics, just Robert Eaglin being a little creepy dude. <laughs> like, it's, he's, fan- he, he's, he's perfectly fine in it. Um, he gets to, like, choose scenery. God bless him. Pick up he, your check, man. He, um, he sells it pretty well. Yeah. I just like, I find this whole thing is just like, okay, we're going to rush to the end. There's a monster there. It's just, God, this episode is like, at the same time, I really like it. Like, I really like the A-plot, but at the same time, what the fuck? <laughs> so, you know who I would have liked to see in the, in the B-plot? Instead of Garibaldi, Ivanova. Interesting. I mean, because okay. I feel like I feel like the way to do that B plot would be to have essentially a genre aware character who's just like, "Fuck this! I'm like not going to engage with it," and that would be Ivanova, right? Like Ivanova would be like. Excuse me, like, this is clearly a, like, creepy weeb trap, like, I'm gonna have backup or something like that. Like, the the fact that it's, I think it's partly that it's Garibaldi that makes it not work. And and there's so many aspects that are sloppy to it. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting with, I think, like, any other character. Like, put it into the first half of season two and make it shared and, and it would be pretty solid. It would be fun. Oh my god, this... This this plot would be so fucking hilarious with Sheridan in it. He'd never leave Grace 17. <laughs> right. Um, like Ivanova would be fun because you could have her like raising her single eyebrow and being like, What the what do you think is going on here? Like, do you really do you really think that this is a thing that you can get away with? What the hell? It's just that it's Garibaldi. Yeah. Ugh. I also feel really bad for whatever poor maintenance person has to clean that level because it is trashed. Yeah. If they've sealed it off so people think it doesn't exist, I have to ask the question. Two questions. What have they been eating? And where has their waste been going? Yeah. I like they said they tapped into the recycling system. Okay. So there's so there's not piles of shit everywhere. Yeah. That's uh that also is implying that their water is coming from the recycling system. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Fair um much. and I will choose not to think about what they eat. Because uh I have that right. Fair enough. Uh you got anything else? No, God help us. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's all we have for this week. Again, this episode had Robert England, Freddy fucking Krueger, and just pissed it away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just mad. I don't even like horror movies. I'm just mad. Um, all right, y'all. We we have survived the two weirdest episodes probably of season three. Um, next time, join us for and the Rock cried out. No Hiding Place, and Shadow Dancing. We're almost to the end of Season 3. It's T-14. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production 
All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.